All right. Uh, God, we just thank you for this opportunity we have to uh, gather together this morning. Um, thank you for the weather. <laughs> yeah, it's hot. Make it cool in here. Help us to relax, enjoy each other's company. Help us to really just get into some really deep, fun, interesting topics this morning as this new leadership team talks about different spiritual questions. Help it to just make us grow closer together and closer to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, so yeah, I mean, if you haven't figured out it kind of keeps happening over and over, but this is kind of the new leadership team at Bloom. We've been taking us, like rotating every three Sundays and teaching. Um, a few Sundays ago, maybe a month ago now, we ordained Aaron as a pastor. Uh, we're going to do the same for Keenan today as well, just to make it legit. And so three pastor <laughs> leadership team, because I really need the help, and uh, there it's it's we started as a co-pastorship, the church too, and so just a team of pastors seems like a much better and more feasible way to keep going forward and make it sustainable and have some fun with this. Um, we're back at the school, which we thought would be a better place to have this than the park, because sometimes with the wind and that garbage truck that we love so much and some other things that can get uh, loud. I did not think it was going to be, in the middle of September, 90 degrees when we had this panel discussion, but... Uh, I love to see Keenan sweat and his face turn red, so this could really add to some fun that we're going to have. It really takes almost nothing. Um, <laughs> but uh, our, those, the MCs today are those that are kind of like going to be grilling us, our Liz and Matt, which I probably should put maybe one of your phone numbers on the screen too if one of you want to um, field any questions from people as well. Um, yeah. Matt, you'll do it? Okay. I'll do yours. You just keep talking while I do this, Keenan. Or one of you two. Yeah, I'll just start talking. <laughs> well, why, why, why don't we start with the questions? All right. Because Liz and I know the three of you are all big talkers, so we're not expecting to get many questions in. <laughs> um, we'll so see. So why don't we start from the beginning and why, uh, ask you to define where your faith is at the moment? <laughs> one more time. Did you, <laughs> did you define your faith? Where your faith is. What do you believe? Define. Yeah. I thought you said, where did you find your faith? And no. I was like, <laughs> sorry. He's British. Sorry. I forgot. I don't speak American. Or no, yeah, you're English. Good. You're good. Lindsay, do you want to interpret for him? Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> if you haven't noticed, all three of us are just stalling because we don't want to define our faith right now. But... Um, I can go first. So I actually this summer have gone through a process of um, intentionally defining my faith uh, to, my, uh, to my family and to this community. Um, I don't know if you guys saw a couple months ago, we had like new bios that we wrote for the website. And um, I have never, I mean, I, I identify it as this in my bio, but I've never like really talked about it in the community, but I have identified myself as an omnist. Um, that's someone who believes that, um, or I guess my interpretation of it is that there is one power, um, God, deity, whatever you want to call it, that is out there in the universe, and um, everything, all, all religions kind of fit into that. So I'm not, I'm under the mindset that, um, 
you can come to God through multiple religions. I understand this creator, this love, this force through Jesus because that's what I was raised to understand. But um, defining that for my family was kind of like nerve wracking because I was like, listen, like I believe in Jesus, but I also believe that there are there are other uh, ways to get to Jesus than just Christianity. Um, and Jesus is the name I assign to that, that being that is, that is all around. Um, but there are people who could have a different name on it, and it doesn't mean it's a different God than my God. So that's, I've been defining that in the last couple of months because, um, <clears throat> I mean, even in our community, like we talk about no judgment, no politics, just Jesus. And I'm all for just Jesus, but I'm also for just Jesus with a different name too. Um, if that makes sense. Like, I'm for the spirit of what's behind those words. That's how Sorry. I've been learning to define my faith in the last couple of months. I am, um, oh boy, that's really loud. Um, I have also been in sort of a process of, um, I use this term um, sort of coming out theologically um, because there's a lot that I grew up with that I don't ascribe to anymore. Um, and there's a lot that I still hold dear for various reasons because it got me where I am today and I feel like, you know, there are pieces of my theology that I grew up with um, that have become more nuanced and therefore more powerful for me personally. But um, a big part of what has been central to me recently has been, and I, I think I've shared this a few times, um, acknowledging that I, I am universalist, that I um, consider myself a universalist Christian. Um, and it's, I would say, similar. It would Will be you interesting. What that is? Yes, okay. I'm going to. I was going to say it's, it would be interesting for Keenan and I to have a conversation at some point about what the difference might be between what I've labeled myself as universalist Christian versus omnist, um, because that's a term that's unfamiliar to me. I hadn't heard that until he wrote his bio. I had to Google um, it. <laughs> and I think my bio, you know, shares a lot of this pretty well too. So I'll keep it pretty brief because Matt's right. We can be talkers. Um, but for me. It's very similar to what Keenan said in the sense that I, I believe that there is, again, one higher power um, and that different cultures throughout time have labeled that power, that being, um, and have experienced that power and that being in different ways because of their culture, because of their time, because of their history, because of their experience, because of their traditions. Um, you know, I think it's similar to the way that in a family you can have one event and every single person in the family is going to have a very different um, narrative for what happened. <laughs> you know, and, and one person might say, I can't, I have no idea how it felt that way to you. Like, that's not what I saw at all. And yet those are all true descriptions of the event that happened. They just have, like, different lenses. I think that's true of God, too. Um, and so, you know, I was raised in Christianity and I hold my... Christian faith very dear, um, and if I'm honest, I haven't quite worked out exactly my Christology in the midst of all this, like what it means for me um, to call myself a universalist Christian specifically, like I haven't figured out whether that is, um, whether that means that um, sort of what Keenan was saying, like that, that my lens um, and the, my experience and my history means that Jesus is where I see God most um, powerfully present, or whether, um, so whether it's more about my history or tradition, or whether there is something, 
Oh, this feels very heretical to say on a recording. Um, <laughs> very like unique about Jesus. And, and for me, where I've landed right now is there does seem to be something unique about Jesus. But I think I really liked what Keenan said about um, how that's the name and the label that I've put on this, this experience of a higher power in the world. Um, and I think there are many other cultures and times that have had a lot of other really beautiful and wonderful examples. Um, so I'm still working out some of the details of it. It's pretty new for me. Um, but the, the really important piece for me and the significant part is um, that I see myself grounded in the Christian faith um, and that at the same time, I believe that all religions lead to awareness of God. And in fact, not only do they lead to an awareness of God, but that we can all learn from different religions because what Christianity emphasizes um, is wonderful, but it also might and when I say Christianity, I mean like the actual Jesus kind. Um, but it, it misses a lot of other really beautiful characteristics of God that other cultures and other religions might represent more fully. Um, so I think that there's really beauty in learning about um, other religions too. Um, I guess I find it really... Um, inspiring and fascinating, like how connected most of these major um, spiritual paths are on, in the world. Like they're, we're, they're saying the same thing, the same message that Jesus teaches is, is getting taught in just different lenses and different views, and it really is all the same thing. And no matter what spiritual leaders I talk to, there's, there's this connection that um, really from the top, unless there's an agenda of what they're trying to do, most are seeing this connection, seeing this beauty. And there's old traditions that talk about it too, like the, uh, the first natives and most of the American like Indian or native cultures have, have this saying of like the seven faces of God and that you grow up seeing one face and that's how you relate, but you have to be careful in knowing that there's all these other faces that are out there and not to um, pretty much come against God in your attempts to say the face that you see is the only thing that the divine encom encompasses because he's so big, how could you think that you could see more than just a grasp, just a shadow? And we see this in the scriptures, like Moses just seeing this piece of God and trying to describe to everybody what he looks like. And, and I feel like there was such a part of my life that that little piece was all that I saw and bought into and jumped on with everything um, because I think that's how it's taught a lot of times, that that's how you have to do it. Uh, until reading Jesus, and I really feel like Jesus opened me up to so much more, like the, the message is something supposed so spectacular. If you look at how many times he talks about all of us being in unity, all of us being seeing each other as one family, all of us loving one another and, and seeing each other as brothers and sisters, there's something so beautiful that opens you up to, wait a minute, God isn't um, hands tied behind his back here. This message is being shown and loved in different ways, but that is a hard wrestle, and it's been a hard wrestle this last like a year and a half of what to deal with it, specifically because the religion of Christianity that supposedly my lens of faith came from, I feel like does not look like the Jesus that inspires me or what com comes out. And so that has been really, really hard to um, see the dichotomy of this parallel of like there's, uh, to me it seems so clear, yet to everyone else it doesn't. It's also hard to be on the inside track. Um, I know so many ministers that cannot teach what they believe because their boards, which are over the church finances, would fire them instantly, and so they give a message that is shadowed for the community. 
At the same point, I honestly think that I have shadowed a lot of my own beliefs over the last few years in fear of hurting someone or taking them off the track. And that isn't helpful either, I don't think. Like this not being able to say things in a kind, loving way and open up without having to be antagonistic or something weird or just be having open dialogue about things. And so I think living under that um, pressure and knowing how many other ministers or spiritual leaders are doing the same thing, it just makes me wonder like, how far off the path have we gotten then that we're living these uh, lives in the bushes, you could say, and then just putting off this different image because this is what we think everyone wants to hear and see. But at the same point, then the, mess, the true message that people are seeing or wanting to teach is being hidden for this mainline acceptable one that really doesn't look a whole lot like Jesus a lot of times. So, um, so where am I at with it right now? I am, in one hand, super inspired to try to live differently and make connections, and at the other hand, really torn about how much um, participation in one that seems like it's going in the wrong direction is just going to hurt others. So, To summarize for all three of us, undeclared. <laughs> so this is, you know, I think you've done a nice summary of where you are now. Um, tell us a bit more about how you got here and um, sp especially key moments or people who've kind of gotten you to this place. Um, I think that sometimes, I mean, I, I think a lot of us view faith as a journey and so curious to know about your journey and, 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 and what got you into this undeclared space, I guess, of, of theology and belief. I don't want to go first. All right, I got it. I'll do it. Okay. Um, so key moments in people. Um, I would say that um, the very first key moment for me, of course, I grew up in a um, very conservative Christian home where we did, like, everything, like Awana and Sunday school and Bible study and went to a private Christian school, and like, every, like everything was this little bubble of conservative Christianity. Um, and there are a lot of things about that that were very harmful and damaging um, in a lot of ways, both theologically and personally and emotionally. But there were some things about it that I look back on and appreciate. And those things are, um, one is that it gave me a really strong foundation in the Bible and in Christianity itself, and at least this sect of it. Um, and it also did allow me to see both people who are extremely um, authentic and have these really beautiful relationships with God and also some of the hypocrisy that can be held within the confines of churches as well. Um, so I think I got to see both of those things up close. And um, while, of course, the, the hypocrisy piece was painful and turned me off about a lot of things in church, Thankfully, in my personal experience, the, the people who were the really authentic example of what it meant to love God and to try to follow Jesus as best they could really overshadowed um, some of the negative stuff. And so I was really lucky that um, I had in particular, I would say there was one person in particular, but it's really her whole family, um, that I, I have for many years lovingly called my surrogate mom and my spiritual mom, um, because she was someone who had um, a lot of really difficult things happen in her life. And yet she saw and she felt God's love in the midst of it. And so for me, 
Um, and I get emotional even talking about her because she's been so meaningful to me. Um, and for me, when I was in the midst of going through some really painful things in my, my young life, which involved things like my parents getting divorced and my dad becoming disabled and some stuff that I've touched on um, a little bit in my sort of introductory to Bloom time, um, she was the person who helped me see and experience God in the midst of that, whereas a lot of other people sort of either shut that down or like pretended it didn't exist or even um, directly or indirectly gave me the message of like, well, why aren't you over it? Like, and, you know, silver lining, you know, God planned this for a reason, which I think is terrible theology, by the way. I don't think God plans awful things to happen to us, but that's neither here nor there at the moment. Um, so she's someone who is really integral to my faith journey. She helped me um, figure out how I could hold both faith, both beliefs concurrently, that God loved me and that God was with me even in really painful experiences and that it was okay to feel pain, that I didn't have to shut it down or ignore it or pretend it didn't exist. Um, and she has continued to be someone who's been really meaningful to me um, throughout my life um, and has helped me in the midst of difficult circumstances and who has allowed me as I, um, when I was younger, of course, we had a different sort of mentor you know, mentee relationship, but as I have gotten older and become an adult and our relationship has morphed into more of a friendship, has allowed me to see some of her own pain and experiences too, which has been really a gift to, to see more closely how someone experiences both grief and the love of God at the same time, because that's been a lot of my faith journey. So that, I would say that person <laughs> is the most integral person. And then of course, it, I would be remiss not to say all of the different pastors and theologians and professors I've learned from over my far too many years of seminary, um, particularly the ones at United Theological Seminary of the Twin Cities, because that was the first time, that was the first time, I was seven years into seminary when I went there, and it was the first time of all my seminaries where um, we had an assignment to write about a passage, and it wasn't do all of your research and get the quote-unquote best you know, resources, most academic scholarly resources, and write what the best interpretation of this is. It was, read it, don't look at a single resource, and tell me how you see and hear God's voice in this. And that was so beautiful, because instead of um, being enmeshed with this idea that there's only one right interpretation, you've got to study really hard to find it. Um, and believe me, I think there are a lot of really bad interpretations of scripture. I'm not saying there aren't. Um, but, but I don't think that there's one right interpretation of scripture. Um, I think that there's nuance that we all bring, again, the different lenses. And so that was the first time that um, we all had one passage, we looked at it, and then we came back in and the professor asked us to share um, what stood out to us. And it was incredible to hear the diversity of the way God spoke to people in one passage. Um, so that really opened my mind and my eyes up to a different sort of study. Um, and then the other, I guess, the final thing I'll say as far as an experience was um, becoming a single parent was really, really changed my theology because there were a lot of things that I, I intellectually believed um, that hadn't really worked their way down to my core. And there were a lot of biases that I didn't realize that I held. Um, about other people that when you're thrust into sort of a different position of privilege or lack thereof in society, and believe me, I understand I'm very privileged in a lot of ways, but I lost a lot of privilege in becoming an unmarried, um, divorced, single parent woman in seminary. There were a lot of um, 
And particularly, I noticed the, like, the not having a wedding ring is like a big deal when you're at church if you've got kids with you. Um, and so, um, so that gave me a different perspective on what it meant to, um, to love others and what it meant to believe that God loves you no matter what, no matter what your circumstances are. Um, and some of the ways that the church really fails in doing that, because I was on the other side of, of that being a failure. Um, and, and going along with that, um, in the process of that, my, this is kind of a bizarre thing to share, but it's really important, um, my, my kid's biological dad, my ex-husband, has now, now identifies as gay which isn't something I really share very often because it's like not my story, right? But it's really integral to my theological development because I grew up in a very homophobic environment. Um, and that really forced me to like take a look at that and say, okay, what am I gonna do with this? You know, we have children um, and I want to raise them in a way that isn't um, even indirectly or like subversively making them believe that there's something like innately wrong with this other human being who's important to them. Um, because that's not good for my kids. And like, I, you know, the most important thing is being able to support my kids and love them really well and help them to have the best life that they can. And that wasn't going to do that. So that forced me to take a look at that. <laughs> and, uh, and that is, um, that's something that's been really transformative because when you <laughs> make the transition, at least in my experience, from very homophobic Christianity to LGBTQIA+, not only accepting, but like affirming and welcoming and embracing, um, that kind of forces you to reconsider some other pieces of your theology, too. <laughs> yeah. I'll jump in, Keenan. I think the biggest part started for me was I took um, had a friend who kind of took over a, a Bible school for a, kind of a church group we were a part of and wanted me to, like, just audit a couple classes to give some feedback on what was going on. And that was the first time I think I really ever cracked the Bible myself to really get into it. Um, and I couldn't justify the positions that were being made. When I was reading, I, I think I saw a verse pertaining to maybe what a subject was talked about, but then I'd find 15 or 20 that seemed to say the opposite, like these contradictions that we hear about that people say that aren't there, that are there. Um, but trying to wrestle with, okay, this, there seems to be a lot more saying something else, and uh, I guess it really got me to strip down, like if really God is love, if this divine essence can be de defined as love, and unity and togetherness and is, is the ultimate goal, this sharing, um, then what of this message doesn't seem to jive and why? Um, one thing I was really lucky with was having a lot of spiritual mentors, teachers accessible to me, which I think is a travesty that it's like contained in these small rooms and these back closets and these conversations that aren't up front on Sunday mornings or whenever people are gathering that we can have deeper conversations on things and they would like, why, do, why can't God be that? Why, they would just open me to these bigger possibilities. It's like, okay, that's a possibility, because I'm not hearing that maybe on Sunday morning. And then you find out that these great teachers or scholars believe this stuff, and it just starts to open you up to more. One thing they really pointed me to that changed a lot, though, was older Christian writing. Most of the stuff people are reading today, which still is valid because it's people's stories or whatever, are stuff from the last 10, 20, 30 years. But we've got thousands of years of lineage writing, and... Uh, I really connected with the 16th century. There are writers, um, Christian mystics, and people writing just the most beautiful stuff on God that just vehemently got kiboshed in the next hundred years by the 
power structure of the Catholic Church and things like that that just can't have people being able to have access to God and be giving these freedoms, so we've got to change things around. But uh, there's really cool stuff, and we, it, you don't ever hear it talked about. So it's either conversations with people or writings, and not just old, but even new. There's some really fantastic books out there, and even some that we've read uh, recently that, that, that get you to, to rethink, to reimagine. Um, I've been a journaler for many years, and so I ask a lot of questions. I'm like, this doesn't seem to jive. I want the answer to this, and I just kind of trust that it'll come and either through a conversation with someone or something I'm reading. Even science will prove it out so many times. I'll read some weird medical journal article, and then it's just like, oh, this makes so much more sense. But there, nothing seems to like not fit. Like Everything seems to mesh so much as you keep going that it paints this beautiful picture. It's just that um, uh, for some reason it seems that in this desire to say, I'm right and you're wrong, we like to shade certain things or just really highlight only little elements of it. Because if I'm right and you're wrong, that makes me feel better. Because I must be doing something really good when really the message is, God's made all of us good. He loves all of us the same. It's, and it doesn't give you that power to be like, oh, I'm, I'm doing a better job than Steve is, so I can like, feel good about myself. It, it kind of takes that away. And I think we really must like it, addicted to it, crave it, because we really like to hold on to that stuff. But I don't know. Um, I, gr- I grew up in uh, the Pentecostal faith movement, and uh, a lot of emphasis was on how you appeared to other people um, and a lot of emphasis was on how well you knew your Bible and how uh, emotive or emotional you were during the gatherings. So a lot of it was like, if you were crying harder than everyone else, you were definitely the best person in the room. Like, there was a, <laughs> like I'm, I'm being completely serious. Like There was a unspoken hierarchy based on um, the way that people performed. Um, it was a performance, it was a performance piece. Um, and uh, I, was, I went to a school, uh, I went to a college that was really heavily focused on that. And um, as a kid, I was in what was called uh, JBQ, which is like junior Bible quiz. Like I memorized all these like weird like verses of the Bible that out of context were really like random and dumb. Like I was like, why do we need to know like what Job like, Six four says like who like honestly it was stupid but um, and so when I was in college I I had this experience where I was like uh, my family moved to Iowa. <laughs> Wait, I'm sorry. I'm no, you're good. Junior Bible Quiz is that what it's called? Yeah, JBQ. Okay. Um, you had these like little like buzzers. It was like a oh, competition. Man. It was great. Uh, it's, it's actually how we'll get into heaven. It's gonna be like you have to like compete. Um, the uh, so I had to I had to spend a, a summer uh, in a city with no one that I knew. After I was in college for the first year, I went to where my family moved in Iowa, and I know I knew no one. And I spent four months uh, living in like the attic closet um, upstairs because I was like I need my own space. Like so I lived in this closet, and all I did was read my Bible and had a very like emotional summer where I was like, and if you look at like my old Facebook posts, like it's some sappy shit in there. But I was like, like just through this like roller coaster of all these feelings about God and all this stuff. And I, I referred to it as like the, um, what do they call it? Like the, the dark night of the soul or whatever, like all this crap. So 
and it was this big emotional experience and like you can see my the bible that i had at that time like i just highlighted everything in it like for no reason except that i was like i'm gonna look like i really like know my shit like i was like really on top of it and uh, it'll beat it up a over little bit the, yeah like over, i was like as long as my bible looks really well used and i'm emotional in front of everyone like i i've got it right and uh, um I'm still an emotional person, but not in my spiritual life. I don't feel, uh, for me, God is unchanging. Like there's not, like he doesn't change based on how I'm feeling or how I'm performing or things like that. And a lot of what I've come to realize is that um, I, I am chasing after integrity and I am looking for, and I'm trying to be friends with people who do, uh, who do the right thing and who do good things when there's no one else watching them or when they don't even know that I've seen them do something, that's when I'm like, yes, like that is what I'm about. I do not care how awesome people make themselves look. Like I've seen, I've been around the block enough times, I've seen enough pastors, I've known enough people. Um, I, am, I am only interested in what people are like when they are not in front of an audience. Um, because I think, uh, I think that's where people really show themselves. And I also, um, in the course of years, I've come to know some people outside of the Christian bubble because I was raised to have only Christian friends, and I don't have like a ton of people who weren't, who didn't grow up in some sort of church environment. But some of the ones that I've met who are like atheists or other religions have, have like, way more integrity than people that I grew up with. So I'm like, I am open to the possibility because I believe that God is goodness, and anything that is good can be attributed to God, and I will chase that goodness and that integrity. That's kind of where I'm at. Okay, um, time to step it up and make it a little, little harder for you. Sure, yeah, it's been like a real breeze right now. Yeah. So, <laughs> so yeah, here you go. Yeah, all three of you mentioned the Bible at length. Um, the central tenets of the Bible, uh, certainly in the New Testament, you know, virgin birth, um, crucifixion, uh, resurrection, your views on those, and, and centrally how the... Uh, literal reading of the Bible um, affects um, it, how important that is to, to being a Christian. Yeah, I'll start that one off. I do not read the Bible. I do not. Like, I do not at all. Like, I'm not going to pretend like I do. Like, yeah, I, I, that's the thing. Like, I know that thing forwards and backwards. Like, I do not read the Bible. I just don't. Like, I'm not, it's not part of my faith practice. And I'm not ashamed of it because, like, I... If I need to find something in there, like, I'll know where to find it. And I know how to use it to support what I want to believe because that's what it's really for, right? Like, I mean, that's what we use it for. Um, so I, I think it has a great practice in a group. Like, I like reading the Bible. Like, when we did this Esther thing, like, I would never just be like, I'm going to sit down and read Esther. Never. Like, I would never do that. But the fact that we did it together and, like, researched it and looked at it and shared it as a group of people, like, I'm all about that because that's, like, searching for like deeper meanings behind it but like by myself i don't do it at all like i don't find value in it um because all that i see when i read it is i go back to the place where it was the dark night of the soul and like i was like i was for me it was like this is the only tangible voice of god i have is what's written here and it's a pretty messed up book so it's really hard to be like that like gung-ho about it so i um i think it has a really great uh, history and a really great um, use in like a group setting but like as an individual I don't read it at all and you're not going to catch me pretending to read it. I just don't. 
Oh, man. Um, it's funny how many people get hung up on, like, the virgin birth thing. Um, like, amazingly. Like, I think that question with the, like, what do you think about Jesus with people who are having a conversation? Guys can't get around the virgin birth. I've heard that more than any other thing there is. And I'm like, well, where does it say you have to believe in the virgin birth to get past all this? Well, that's what people say. And uh, it's, it's interesting. The things that we think have to be believed, I guess, to go on, uh, we've thrown a lot of weird stuff. I have no idea. I mean, my gut says no. Like, that just seems weird. But I'm open to a miracle, and I'm not surprised if it's not. And I think that's where we need to teach people to be is this, like, hold it, like the concept of what we're talking about, that there can be God miraculously doing things. But at the same point, so much of writings from 2,000 years ago is... Um, allegorical or there's something more behind it or they were just really trying to make Jesus seem like the guy and so we really wanted to do a lot like there is some stuff where if you get into the why they chose which passages and start reading around the a seat what is it called where they group together to decide what books were it yeah 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 there you can read actually some of the dialogue like you can see how um uh, Martin Luther was really opposed to having the book of James and the book of uh, Revelation put in there. He thought it was going to be way too hard for anyone that was just a regular, everyday follower of Jesus to understand what's going on, and it shouldn't. Uh, but it ended up being in there because it's a collection of like resource materials. This is not a, a instruction manual on life. It is a history of how we've interacted with God, how we've messed it up, how we've done good, how we've and it's not taught that way, and it's really sad that it's not, because there really is a few books in there that um, are fantastic, that are like key to faith, that we should be inspired by. Philippians, um, the book of John, the book of Ephesians. Uh, there, there's recaps and uh, so much of faith and so little that's debated by anyone that this isn't the fullest of what we have that should be read to inspire and go on to. And some of the other stuff is maybe... Uh, more for the people in charge or helping that are really passionate about making a movement or leading things, but I, I wouldn't say that anyone should read the Old Testament unless you're in a group setting. And like, it just, it's a history book that doesn't have a ton of relevance to like your day-to-day. And even the scriptures themselves, Jesus' own word says that this guide, this tutor that's supposed to brought you here, you have the Holy Spirit in you now, and you don't need this like all this entanglement to get you going forward. I think we do such a bad job of telling people to trust God on the inside of them. And instead, we try to point them back to something that's been translated several different times by people with agendas or that don't know what they're doing and saying, you'll just find all the answers there. And we haven't taught you how to actually listen to the inside, whether it's, does that jive with me? Does that not jive with me? Because there's contradictions in it. I think the contradictions are cool. It doesn't throw it off to me. It shows that there's, it's a mess that's been put together. And this mess, we can still learn from it and find God and there's something beautiful going on there. Um, but I don't even remember the question or where it was going, but... Can I, can I, do you care if I interject? Yeah. If I say something you want to say, you can claim it I'll as your... Bad. Yeah, <laughs> you can copyright it as your original thought. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, I just want to interject that I think that it's really fascinating that um, so much of people's belief is like, it's like a brick wall. Like, you need all these fundamental, like, bricks right there in order for it to stand up, but if you, like, punch one of those bricks out and you're like... I don't believe that Mary was really a virgin. You're like, oh my God, the whole thing falls apart. Or I don't believe in like a yeah. literal six-day creation. Like the whole thing crumbles because it's based on 
uh, things that are solid and are like put in place on top of each other. And if you take out a bottom piece, the whole thing falls apart. Um, and I think that our faith should be more like a living, breathing thing that is flexible and moves. And yeah. uh, because, like, you think about if you build a bridge and you keep it like really strong and don't let it like have like some movement, like it's gonna break and fall. But it has to have like even tall buildings, like you can see them swaying in the wind. Like they need to have a little bit of give, or it's gonna collapse. Like yeah. it doesn't work. I don't know how architecture works, but I understand that part of it. <laughs> well, and I mean, I mean, scriptures talk about this concept of Jesus, God coming to be human, to walk in our shoes, as being like this cornerstone to something else, this, like, this foundation that we build upon. And, but there's so many arguments like that that people will think like one thing will just throw the whole thing off, and there really isn't if you get down to it. Like the hardest one I think I've ever been told or asked by someone, they're just like, well, there's just no proof that Jesus was divine, that he was, there's a good chance he was human, and there's all these books, even that people from Bloom have read, like, man, it just... What if Jesus was human? If Jesus was human and zero God, the story is more powerful to me than if he was God and human together because we have a human that now got the, infused with the spirit of God, just like we are on the inside of us, and was so passionate about making sure the rest of us knew that we are in God's image, that we can walk with God at any time, that we can whatever. And he died to reaffirm this stuff for us to believe it. How does it not even make it more like you were that connected with God and wanted everyone else to feel it that you're just like, well, you, and you didn't have more divine DNA than the rest of us? I mean, if you look at what Jesus says, he's telling all of us that we're children of God. Every, his, his thing is that we all have the spirit in the inside of us. He says greater things than we can do. If you really honestly believe the thing Jesus is saying, he's like, you're actually better than me, so stop looking at me as this thing because you need to look at yourselves and the divine that's inside of you, and it just gets powerful and exciting. And so even like... If Jesus was human, I'm like, yep, I'm still on board. This connection, this story, this making with God, it, it makes it even like, wow. Uh, God is moving. He's using. There's something going on here. But Yeah, and I think um, going, going along with that, one of the um, phrases that I've heard um, Greg Boyd use, who's a theologian I really like, um, is house of cards theology. And I think it's that same sort of idea that like if one of the cards is removed, the entire thing is demolished. Um, and I think a lot, of, a lot of people have a house of cards theology. And I think I had a house of cards theology 10 years ago. Um, and it's not helpful <laughs> in my experience. It's not helpful and it, it means that um, your, your faith is really shaky and it means that one you know, major life you know, thing happens, one major shift or one major loss or one major challenge, and all of a sudden you're on really shaky ground, um, and that connection to God that was so powerful to you that you've used in the past to get through difficult times is no longer present for you, and I think that that's a really theologically um, dangerous place to be. So um, I love this question. I'm going to geek out a little bit. Uh, the, the virgin birth thing. So I will add a little disclaimer. I don't know where I stand yet, um, and I'm going to put a little plug for our next book, which is going to be um, digging into, I mentioned last, I think last week is when I mentioned, it's called A Complicated Pregnancy. It's written by one of my previous professors from, originally from Bethel, and then he transferred to United Theological Seminary for just a lot of reasons. And he's wonderful, and he um, digs into the concept of the virgin birth, and like, what can we learn from that theologically? Why is this so integral to people's faith? And where does he stand? And so he digs into it a lot. And I, that's all I know about the book. I don't know his conclusion or anything, but I'm super excited about that. That'll be really fun. Or maybe it'll be like really theologically scary for people and will shake your faith. So 
or my faith, who knows. Well, I was going to ask, since we've been talking about it, do you feel like it's gotten a little hotter in here? I'm <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, so, but, but it's an interesting question, and it's one that I have not really spent much time or effort in because it was one that I always took for granted. Growing up, like, that was one of the tenets of faith. Like, you have to believe this, and if you don't, like, you're not a Christian, which is interesting because I don't see anywhere in Scripture that Jesus is like, hey, y'all, my mom was a virgin. Knock it <laughs> off, you know? Like, um, and also... Like, it, it goes back to what Keenan and I were talking about last week, um, about the fact that so much of the way that scripture was edited by scholars was to sexualize and objectify women. And that's another example. If you go to the original languages, the word is not virgin. The word is young girl. And I think that that, for me, if we focus on thinking of Mary as a young girl, is more powerful to me because it's similar to like thinking about Esther as a young girl, realizing that this wasn't, again, this mature, um, well-adjusted, well -adjusted, thank you. I couldn't think of the word I wanted. Well-adjusted um, young woman who had all of this wisdom. This was probably a young teenager. And to think about what she went through, um, whatever her experience was, whether she miraculously became pregnant as a virgin, which, wow, that would be really tough as like a 14-year-old, um, or whether it's any of the other options that we'll, I'm sure, get into with the book that we're going to read. Um, to me, that's more powerful to think of her as this young woman put in a very difficult position, and that says more about the gospel um, than anything, I think. So I don't really care whether she was a virgin or not, um, but I'm excited to dig into that more. I think that'll be fun. Um, speaking of the literal interpretation of scripture, that's a really interesting concept because my experience has been and I grew up saying, like, I interpret the Bible literally. As a 13-year-old, I didn't know what that meant, but that's what I said. Um, but what I have found is that even those who say that they are, like, hardcore literalists when it comes to the Bible are not. Um, they pick and choose what they're going to apply literally. There is a, a passage in Leviticus that says that if your child's disrespectful, you should stone them to death. I've never seen someone stone their child to death, and my kids haven't been stoned to death yet, but they have been disrespectful. Um, so I, everyone picks and chooses. Everyone picks and chooses what they're going to highlight, what they're going to... Well, it's a glaringly interpret. obvious cultural thing. It's, it is. It's, it's very, very... Um, well, right. It's so obvious I'm, I'm because that... Of, right, because yeah. that is. But, you know, that passage that's, what, a couple chapters away that talks about um, same-sex relationships, yep. that is not cultural. You know, but it shows you it's the same book, and we take these passages and we say, well, that doesn't count anymore. But this one, yep, that's for all time and place. Um, and, and so am I a literalist when it comes to scripture? In some I am. Um, when, when scripture says that all people are made in God's image, yep, I believe that one. When scripture says, you know, some of what, what you were saying, Luke, about um, that we are all, you know, children of God, that we are all brothers and sisters of Jesus, that um, we are able to do things more powerful than Jesus, yeah, yep, I believe that too. Um, when scripture says that the most important thing is to love God and to love others as we love ourselves, yep, that one's literal for me. Um, there are a lot that aren't. <laughs> and there are a lot that someone who, who would be within the like literalist tradition um, believes is literal that I don't. So it's an interesting question. And what I believe as a, you know, what I take as a, um, important to interpret literally is different now than it was 10 years ago. And it's probably going to be different next year and 20 years from now. Um, and I hope it is, because as Keenan was saying, I think that faith is meant to be a living, breathing, developing, shifting organism. 
Um, there was one other thing I was going to say about the literal interpretation piece. Um, I don't remember anymore. So yeah, so I think, um, I think we all do. Um, but no, I would not consider myself one of those literalists. <laughs> oh, and the other thing I was going to say about the, um, you asked about, I think, like Jesus and miracles maybe, or am I? Well, I asked about I the, the mention of the, the, some of the three central tenets of Virgin, Virgin Bird, Oh, yeah, yeah, okay. So that's when you said resurrection, that was the one that made me think of miracles. Um, and so I'm not going to speak on those each individually, but I will say as far as like the way scripture was written and the way that it has been edited over the years, um, a lot went into that, including culture and including, yes, I'm going to say it again, the patriarchy, uh, <laughs> because it did. Um, but even... You know, do I believe all of the, the things in scripture that are miracles actually happen exactly as they're recorded? No, and here's why. Number one, because when we look at the Old Testament, for example, the way that, um, the way that people recorded history was different then than now. Like now it's like you've gotta be objective, the goal is to be objective, and no one is, right? But that's the goal. We all want our sources of news to be objective, as objective as possible. Um, that wasn't the case. It was more about like my God's bigger and better than your God. And so stories were written and crafted in a way to highlight your God's strength. And that's the way it was. That's not bad. That's not wrong. It's just the way the culture was. So do I believe everything happened exactly as it is in the Old Testament? No. And I have a very easy way to prove that. There are passages that talk about the exact same event that say, say like, the Israelites killed 75,000 people. And then there's another one that says they killed 30,000 people. Well, one of those is wrong, or both. Um, and then as far as the, the miracles that Jesus performed, um, I, I do believe that Jesus probably performed miracles. Um, whether they're all the same or not, I, I don't know. But I do know that when we can look at the Gospels, there are four of them, right? And they all give a very different picture of Jesus because they all had a different um, theme that they were trying to promote. There was, they all had one particular aspect or a couple particular aspects of Jesus's character or God's character that they were um, turning their lens toward. And when you turn your lens towards something, you miss other things and you shift things to make a narrative point. Um, and so I no, I don't think everything happened exactly as it's recorded in the Bible, but I think that there probably were miracles and which ones were miracles and which ones were stories invented to make God, you know, to prove the point that God is bigger than other gods. I don't know. And frankly, I don't particularly care. <laughs> so, so what you're saying is the Bible was the Fox News at the time? <laughs> uh, I, I wouldn't Fox go News, I would. that far. <laughs> I would say that it's the Old Testament isn't ours. Like we're, we're borrowing a book or from another religion. Um, like in some, like the letters were written to Ephesians. Were written yeah, to, yeah. But know? I mean, I mean, we, we took a, the Torah mm -hmm. from another religion, and then decided to believe differently than they believed about it because they don't believe in a seven-day creation. And so we took their book and be like, ooh, it happened in seven days. And they're like, we wrote this. It didn't. But all right. And then we, we keep going on, like, did we not ever decide to reference back? Because it's not like there's some Jews who don't believe that. It is not a seven-day creation in Judaism. It's metaphor. And how we took their book from them, and like, ooh, we're going to make it even better by, like, saying their metaphors are real. Like, I don't, I don't know what we're doing there. Yeah. Uh, but there are some cool stuff about, like, the stories of Jesus, too. Like, um, I've heard... 
Uh, I was in a talk where a professor was talking about like the, the story of um, the feeding the 5,000 on the mount, and he says, like, like, when we really look at the, art, the history behind what was going on here, the people that were wandering around that would be following Jesus, like, there's not like a 7-Eleven that you go for lunch. Uh, they're taking their lunch with them, and so all these people have food, and there's some people that don't have food, and so they're all listening to Jesus, and the miracle was that everyone started sharing, and after everyone was done sharing, there was so much freaking food, even though there was hungry people and people with lunches, that there were all this food extra if we would just do this. And he's like, is that a bigger miracle? Because that's a miracle you and I can perform on any day. Whether this, or is it better that he just like, <sighs> and there was food everywhere. And you're like, when you start like using your, when we actually decide to engage our brain in the process of spirituality, you're like, oh, if God has a brain that's bigger than mine, he probably could see this even clearer than I could. And maybe there's some merit to this. And like, I, I, just as the logical side of me that starts being like, eh. maybe we want the spooky pooky so bad that we start missing the actual miracles that are happening which are still miracles that a group of 5,000 strangers would all share together and there would be that much food left over that everyone was fed and had a great time. And, uh, and I think that's the kind of stuff we need in our neighborhoods today, like this kind of sharing. There's more than enough stuff, yet we have so many people hungry. And so we're looking at the wrong miracles, I think, sometimes. But. And I think hopping off of that, like if we, if we think about it that way, and I've actually never heard that interpretation and I friggin' love it, um, but if we think about that, then it does make more sense when Jesus said, you'll do greater miracles than these, because that gives us, like, we don't have to have some, like, develop your spirituality and have this really, you know, you don't have to be a televangelist who, like, pushes people off the stage and they're slain in the spirit in order to do miracles and to that be, too, I mean, they get a lot of money that way, yeah. um, you know, in order to do, <laughs> to do, oh, you'd be the one who could do it, <laughs> um, in order to be able to, to do miracles greater than what Jesus did. Um, there are more followers of Jesus now than there were when Jesus was physically alive on the earth. So yeah, we should be able to perform greater miracles than that when it comes to like sharing resources and food and taking care of those who who need care and who um, you know don't have enough food. And again, that brings up like Sheridan's story. That's part of the reason we we partner with them because that's our responsibility. That's our call. So um, one of the questions that you guys sent over to us um, was about where you struggle in your faith and beliefs. But I want to know what about your faith and beliefs gives you peace and gratitude? I mean, I really trust that, that God has got this in his control. Uh, I grew up in uh, kind of happy Christianity. Um, and then was exposed to the freak-out Christianity that everyone's burning. I mean, it's, the message was still there a little bit that people could die and there could be this place called hell. But my childhood wasn't the running around with, like, the horns, like, oh, my God, you're going to die. I was just in D.C. There's some freaky people in trucks or newsstands. The turn-and-burn folks are everywhere there. Or, like, it's just gross. Um, but then you get exposed to that and you're like, okay, this doesn't feel like God. Like there's this peace that's always, like no matter how messed up I got in my life or faith or almost going to jail or anything that happened to me, like I always felt that God was in control and had this, that everything was cool. And um, I really do see that. I think when we try to stop freaking out and altering things and just start to try to 
be in tune with this song already going on and stop worrying about me. I guess that's that story that I trust that Jesus has got me, and so maybe I should look at those around me and try to be the hands and feet to, to love on them, to, to do that, and then I'll be taken care of. The more I've walked on that, it's just been, it's been so good. And life, when it gets stressful or anxious or a mess, is when all of a sudden I start meddling again and like, I've got to figure everything out. And I'm not trusting that God's got everything in control again and that I can just look at others and how do I love someone differently and help their situation out. And um, uh, So that's what gives a lot of peace to me is that, that just trusting that he's got me. I mean, in, even when it comes to job, Matt's looking for a job right now, my finances, anything like that, like when I start to worry too much and freak out and take it into my own hands, like just it, the peace is gone, everything crumbles. And when I, really, when I really just try to put it on my mind and be like, nope, I'm just going to trust that this is going to turn out. And it might be some people are like, oh, you can't just be the guy that smiles and God's going to turn it. When I can finally shut off my brain that's freaking out and just get into that space, it just all, it, it just all falls together. It really does. And um, there's so much peace. And there's so many people I can help in the meantime instead of just spinning in my own chair and freaking out. So. Um, Good question, Lizzie. I, I talked about how, and I've, I've shared this before, um, for me, a lot of my childhood was about the emotions. and um, You're so emotional, too. It's so great. I know. <laughs> um, but in my faith, it's like the only place that I'm like pretty non-emotional because I, for me, that's my safe place. Like, mm. It doesn't matter what I'm feeling as an individual or whatever rage or frustration or drama that I have in my own life. I don't feel that about God, and I don't feel that God feels that about me. So, like, I don't stress about, um, I don't stress at all about my relationship with God, and I don't stress at all about what's going to happen when I die. Like, I don't stress about any of that stuff. I stress about, like, getting our kids out of the house on time. Like, I stress about, you know what I mean? Like, all that stuff, that is overwhelming to me. But, like, the, like, all the big, like, end-of-life questions, like, all that stuff, like, I feel super peaceful about it. Like, I'm not worried about that. I mean, granted, like, when I'm on my deathbed, I'll probably start freaking out. But, like, right now, like, I'm totally chill about it. Um, I think, to me, like, in addition to the peace, like, the biggest challenge for me is, um, is being at peace with, like, everyone else around me. Um, and being at peace with, like, the people who are, you know, standing on the side of the road with a sign that says, like, turn or burn. Like, being at peace and being okay that God is at peace with those individuals, too, like, that... That takes a lot of effort, and like that is where, for me, the big struggle is. Like, I'm not afraid of my relationship with God, and I'm not afraid about that. I'm afraid of like, how many people am I going to have to adapt my viewpoint and adapt my way of living and understanding people to be okay with them being with me forever at the same time? Like, how much am I going to have to be okay with the fact that someone I don't like gets to be a part of God's kingdom as much as I do? Like, that for me is the I have no peace about that, but I'm trying to get peace about that. Um, this is a fun question because um, I, I really appreciate the, the nuance you added to it, Liz, um, because it's not a question I've ever really thought about, like where do I have peace in my theology? And it's really exciting as I sit here and think about it to realize for the first time in my life I can say that it's almost hard for me to narrow down what I can share just for the sake of time that I have peace about, which is really cool. Um, so I think the couple big like, things that are more significant shifts for me that I have peace in, one is, um, as I shared a little bit ago, um, I grew up in a 
in an environment where there was like one right interpretation of scripture. And even seminary was kind of scary because it's like, you know, you're writing your papers and you know that the professor has in the back of their brain like, oh, I hope they saw these resources and got the right interpretation. And you have to hope that you found the right resources and you got the right interpretation so that you pass your um, classes and aren't labeled a heretic or something. Um, and I'm not in that place anymore. It's really exciting to hear different interpretations. It's really exciting to me to hear, you know, that what stood out to you in a passage is completely different than what stood out to me. And to hear how big God is, that God can't be defined by one theology or one religion or one interpretation of a, of a passage of scripture. Um, and that there's this like co-creative element of the way that, um, theology develops and the way that our faith develops. It's not just about God. It's, I mean, obviously God's a huge part of it, but it's also about how we see God and how we experience God. And we each have, in some ways, a very unique experience of God because we all have unique stories. Um, so I'm in a place now where, where I consider myself um, sort of a playful theologian. Like, I like to have fun with theology. And that's something that's been fun about Bloom is that as we sit up here, I don't think that there's been a single week that I've been here where there hasn't been laughter and there hasn't been joy um, and there hasn't been excitement about new ideas or new ways to think about things. Mm. And I love that. So, so theology that's playful, it gives me peace because it isn't this scary, like, oh my gosh, if I don't get it right, then I really hope this isn't one of those like unforgivable sins that, you know, because <laughs> I don't believe this one tenet of Christianity, so I'm going to burn forever. Um, so that really brings me a lot of peace because I really do think that God is playful um, in addition to all of the other characteristics of God. I think that's one that we've lost is that God is playful and Jesus is playful. Um, and so I really enjoy that. Um, the universalism piece obviously brings peace because I don't have to worry about my soul or about the fact that there are other people, like Keenan was saying, that um, have theology that is really hard for me to be at peace about. Um, but, they're, but it's not on me to convert them or their souls are in danger. Like that was a really sort of scary theology to have, like that your spouse or your best friend or your whoever could end up burning forever and it's kind of on you because you didn't convert them. Um, and it's just like, it, it leads to a lot of really icky, icky stuff, like including, you know, um, all the way up to like genocide. So, um, which is ironic because why are you killing people who aren't converting because then they are going to end up, but anyway. Um, so it goes back to how much we use our brain along yeah. with spirituality. And so, so I think like the universalism piece. And then the other, um, the final thing that I'll say for now is um, my theodicy, which is theodicy is um, the question of how God and evil coexist. Um, and my theodicy is something that brings me a lot of peace because I've come to a point where uh, my experience of God has been that in addition to being playful and um, light and airy and warm, God is also deeply compassionate and deeply present. Uh, I think God is deeply present all the time, but I think that there's a unique way that we can experience God's compassion when we're in the midst of painful times. That's been true for me, um, and it's been true even in experience, you know, when I was a hospital chaplain sitting with people in the midst of incredibly difficult losses. Um, and you just feel God's presence in a different way. Like there's almost like this physical weight of God's presence when you are on what I consider very sacred ground with people who are suffering. Um, and so, so my, my belief and my experience of God as ever and always present in the midst of painful things, not as the cause, 
hear me very clearly, not as the cause, um, but as the one bringing comfort, as the light that can never be diminished, that can never be snuffed out, is very comforting to me because I know that no matter how difficult or painful life gets, that that will not separate me from the experience of God. Okay, last question because we're running out of time and everybody's a little warm. Yeah. Um, yeah. With, uh, with a new structure at Bloom, um, what uh, do each of you uh, plan on bringing that's new and, and particular to you, to um, the leadership team? Do I get to cop out and say I'm a woman? So. <laughs> um, no, I mean, I, I do think that there's truth to that. I think that there is truth to the fact that um, I have a different experience than the two sitting next to me because I am a woman and I've experienced what it's like to go through seminary as a woman and to be raised in Christianity as a woman. Um, America. So, well, go ahead. That's it, and America. Um, so I think that that's, uh, and yes, absolutely. So I think that that's, that is one thing that's true. Um, and I think... Um, one of the things that we've talked about is we, we, the three of us talk together is that one unique, I guess, um, experience or skill that I bring that I think does offer some um, additional, I don't know, um, nuancing maybe to my perspective and my experience is that I, I have experience with birth and death. <laughs> Um, I have experience sitting with people in the midst of birth, and I have experience sitting with people in the midst of death. Um, and that's a really important thing to be able to offer um, to a community because that's something, I mean, we have births coming, we've had births happen recently, um, and there will be death, there will be loss. Um, so I think my experience with, particularly with like the grief um, and the pain um, is something that can be helpful, I hope. <laughs> Um, I will be bringing my penis to every gathering. Oh, I'm just kidding. <laughs> You're not? <laughs> I'm just saying, that's all I have to contribute. Um, no, I, um, everyone listening to the recording, I apologize. That was really weird. I thought it'd be funny, but it was weird. Um, I, uh, I guess so, um, uh, I don't know how many of you know, but my, uh, major in college was actually uh, church planning, so it was evangelism and church planning, and uh, Shelly and I got involved at Bloom um, right when it opened up at Ramsey, and um, I'm very passionate about this community, and I'm very passionate about where I think this community can go from here. Um, I think that we're a very good group of friends, and I think that we do a lot of things in our personal lives that are very good. I think a lot of us have that integrity that I was talking about. Um, what I guess what I'm excited about and what I'm hoping to channel and bring is something that I struggle with myself. So um, I think bringing that uh, level of charity to other people around us. Like I'm excited about um, like what we want to do with the Sheridan story. I'm, I'm excited about us being a little bit more uh, publicly involved than just like our own like little group of people. Um, that's something that I'm excited about. That's something that I want to see move forward because if, um, if all we are is a group of friends, like that's great, but maybe we don't need to be like putting all this money into meeting in a school. Maybe we don't need to be, like if that's all that we want to be, 
then maybe it's time to like think about something else. So to me, I'm like excited about bigger picture bloom things, like as far as like what, um, not that we need to grow in numbers, but like how do we grow as influencers to the people around us? Like that's what I'm excited about. You're on fire. It's really hot in here. Um, what are you going to bring, Luke? <laughs> I am going to bring uh, faith in all of you. I am really analytical. Uh, uh, I would not have uh, partnered up with just anyone. Um, the two sitting next to me have so much on the inside of them that I think each and every one of us need, um, can be inspired by, can learn from their stories, their background, their enthusiasm, their passion. But it doesn't stop just there. Like each of you in your seats, like we have such a unique gifting of people here. And how few times in our life do we get someone who really can cheerlead and pull that out of us and believe in us and walk us through it when we fall on our face and try again and, and reassure us that there's something on the inside of you that the other person sitting next to you needs to, needs to hear, that your compassion, your hugs, your love, your influencers, that there's something there. Like We need someone to believe in us, and I really feel like that's what I'm supposed to be doing right now is really empowering and uh, believing in and pushing you all forward.